You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Seminary Ridge was full of men and boys from town, all eager to witness a brush with the Confederates and not dreaming of the terrible conflict that was to occur on that day. I climbed up a good-sized oak tree so as to have a good view. Soon the artillery opened fire and shot and shell began to fly over our heads, one of them passing dangerously near the top of the tree I was in. There was a general stampede towards the town. I was not long in reaching the town and found the streets full of men, women, and children, all under great excitement. Being anxious to see more of the battle, I concluded I would go upon the observatory on the store building of the Fainstock Brothers, situated on the northwest corner of Baltimore and West Middle Streets. The observatory was on the back of the building and had a good view of the field where the battle was then being fought. We, several other persons were present, had been up there quite a little time when I observed a general and his staff coming down Baltimore Street from the south of town. Upon reaching the courthouse opposite the store, they halted and made an attempt to get up into the belfry to make observations, but were unable to accomplish this. I went down into the street and going over to the courthouse told them that if they wished they could go up onto the observatory of the store building. The general dismounted and with two of his aides went with me up onto the observatory. Upon reaching the top, the general, with his field glasses, made a careful survey of the field west and northwest of the town, also the number of roads radiating like spokes of a wheel from the town. In the midst of it, a scout came riding up West Middle Street at a full gallop, halted below us, and called up, asking if General Howard were there. General Howard answered in person, and the scout called to him that General Reynolds had been killed and that he should come onto the field immediately. Daniel Skelly, resident of Gettysburg. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 331 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last episode, we talked about Robert E. Lee's arrival on the battlefield at Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863. 
Well, with this show, we're going to talk about the arrival of another general, this one on the federal side, 11th Corps Commander Major General Oliver Otis Howard. Up until now in our narrative, on the federal side, the 1st Corps has stood alone at Gettysburg. Well, with a nod to John Buford's Union Horsemen, of course. But as far as federal infantry, it's been the 1st Corps carrying the fight. But help would soon be arriving in the form of Howard's 11th Corps. Before his death, John Reynolds had sent orders to speed the approach of the remaining two divisions of the 1st Corps, as well as Howard's 11th Corps. Earlier that morning, Howard's men had set out from their campsites near Emmitsburg, Maryland, at about 8.30, with instructions to follow the 1st Corps north to Gettysburg. To help ease congestion on the roadways and to expedite the march, Howard had one division, Francis Barlow's, move north in the footsteps of the 1st Corps along the Emmitsburg Road, while his other two divisions, under Carl Schurz and Adolf von Steinwehr, approached Gettysburg on a parallel route a few miles farther east along the Tawnytown Road. Howard and his staff were riding ahead of Barlow's division coming up the Emmitsburg Road, when, probably not far from Marsh Creek, Howard received Reynolds' first message, urging him to hurry. But since his troops were already on the move, Howard took no special action. It was only when he reached the Sherfee Peach Orchard just south of town and received Reynolds' message to speed up his corps' march that Howard sent aides racing off to hurry up the approach of both the 11th Corps columns. Then, rather curiously, rather than reporting directly to Reynolds, Howard apparently decided it was more important for him to familiarize himself with the area, so he and his adjutant general, Colonel Theodore Masonberg, rode to Cemetery Hill. They saw that the elevation commanded the town and the countryside to the west and north, that its gentle slope in those directions made for a good artillery position, and that Culp's Hill to the right and Cemetery Ridge to the left could anchor the flanks of a defensive position there. Although both John Buford and John Reynolds almost certainly noted and appreciated the significance of Cemetery Hill being the dominant point of terrain south of Gettysburg, Otis Howard does seem to have been the first to voice aloud the thought that it was too critical to lose. Turning to Masonburg, Howard declared, This seems to be a good position, Colonel. Without missing a beat, Masonburg replied, It is the only position, General. Afterward, writing of this moment, Howard stressed that both men had meant it was an important position for the army to occupy and hold if it was to maintain its position at Gettysburg. Later on, there would be a bit of controversy over the fact that Howard accepted credit for selecting Cemetery Hill as the key position to be held south of town, for which he was given the official thanks of Congress. Others, however, insisted that John Reynolds had recognized the Hill's significance and even given instructions that Howard ensure it was occupied. 
There's no evidence that Reynolds actually gave any such orders, though, and Howard does seem to be the first to go on record as voicing Cemetery Hill's importance, and he was the one who took measures to ensure Union troops occupied and held it. After observing the advantages of holding Cemetery Hill, Otis Howard rode into Gettysburg, where he tried to climb to the belfry of the courthouse, but it was locked. However, teenager Daniel Skelly offered to take him up to the observatory on the roof of the Thainstock building across the street. And Howard was there, using field glasses to survey the surrounding countryside, when Sergeant George Gwynn of Cole's Maryland Cavalry rode up and shouted from the street below that Reynolds had been wounded. Howard replied, I am very sorry. I hope that he will be able to keep the field. Howard then continued his survey of the countryside for a few more minutes before his aide, Captain Daniel Hall, whom he had earlier sent off in search of Reynolds, now appeared in the street and shouted up, General Reynolds is dead, and you are the senior officer on the field. At age 33, Oliver Otis Howard, Otis to his family, was the youngest corps commander in the Army of the Potomac. He was a West Pointer, class of 1854, a deeply religious man, and a fervent abolitionist. Howard's right arm had been shattered the previous year at the Battle of Fair Oaks, necessitating its amputation. Rising from regimental to brigade and later divisional command, Howard was appointed commander of the 11th Corps in April 1863. About half of the 11th Corps soldiers were either German by birth or by ancestry, and they had suffered much from the prejudices of the other Army Corps and were unfairly scapegoated for the federal disaster at Chancellorsville. The story is probably familiar to most of you, how, after his famous flank march at Chancellorsville on May 2, 1863, Stonewall Jackson had driven the 11th Corps from its vulnerable position on the right flank of the Army of the Potomac. While there were some instances of panic, the Corps actually acquitted itself well in a nearly hopeless situation. Later, though, after Hooker ordered an ignominious retreat back across the Rappahannock, the Army and the Northern Press began to search for a scapegoat. The burden of responsibility for the disaster at Chancellorsville settled quickly, if unjustly, on the 11th Corps. As Rich said, nearly 50% of the soldiers hailed from Germany or were of German ancestry, and this made the entire Corps a target for ethnic persecution. The effects of such bigotry were aggravated since many veterans of the Army of the Potomac refused to accept the 11th Corps as a true member of the Army because it had come over from John Pope's Army of Virginia. And so, even while the other Corps in the Army of the Potomac heaped scorn upon the 11th, Northern newspapers, after Chancellorsville, carried harsh criticism of the formation to all corners of the country. Such criticism and scapegoating, particularly when it was without foundation in fact, had a predictably ill effect on the men in question, 
As a result, the Corps seethed with resentment in the aftermath of the Chancellorsville debacle. Howard, for his part, did little to ease the hurt feelings of his troops, since he accepted practically no personal responsibility for the disaster that had occurred on May 2nd. His attitude aggravated ill feelings among the German soldiers, who were already upset that Howard had replaced the immensely popular Franz Siegel. Siegel had been temporarily replaced by officers of German extraction promoted from within the Corps. But then Howard, a deeply religious abolitionist from New England, came over from the Second Corps. His pious personality won him few friends among the soldiers of the 11th Corps. One German complained they were now given Christian tracts instead of sauerkraut. Howard's command consisted of three divisions, with two brigades each. Brigadier General Francis C. Barlow commanded the 1st Division. Slender, pale, beardless, and not yet 30 years old, Barlow was a Harvard graduate and New York lawyer who had demonstrated bravery under fire on the peninsula and at Antietam. The boyish-looking general ruled his division with an iron hand, earning him the animosity of the men who served under him. Barlow reciprocated his men's loathing. He wrote on May 8th, in the aftermath of Chancellorsville, quote, You can imagine my disgust and indignation at the miserable behavior of the 11th Corps. You know how I have always been down on the Dutch, and I do not abate my contempt now. Well, okay, so there you go. Anyway, continuing in command of the 2nd Division was Baron Adolf Wilhelm August Friedrich von Steinwehr. And then leading the 3rd Division was the most renowned of Howard's subordinates, Karl Schurz, who was second only to Siegel himself in the estimation of the North's German-Americans. As the army moved north toward a probable collision with the Confederates, Schurz said that the Federals were, quote, ready and eager to march and fight, end quote. And the 11th Corps was more eager than any other formation in the Army of the Potomac. The Corps' much maligned men hoped more than anything for the opportunity to redeem themselves and shed their shameful post-Chancellorsville reputation. On June 15th, one officer wrote, May we meet Lee somewhere soon, and may the 11th Corps prove that it is as good and brave as any other. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. After he received the news of John Reynolds' death, and with it the realization that he was now in command of the Union forces engaged at Gettysburg, Otis Howard went back to Cemetery Hill and established his headquarters there. And just in case you're keeping count, well, Howard was the fourth general that day to command the federal forces at Gettysburg. There had been John Buford, John Reynolds, and Abner Doubleday. Now, as Howard assumed command, he said to those around him, God helping us, we will stay here until the army comes. Couriers raced away from Cemetery Hill with a stream of messages, one to Carl Schertz, putting him in charge of the 11th Corps, one to Doubleday, telling him to hold his position, one to John Buford, telling him to remain with Doubleday, and one to Dan Sickles at Emmitsburg, quote-unquote, ordering him up. That courier was then to go on to Army headquarters at Tawnytown. Finally, a dispatch was sent to Henry Slocum, commanding the 12th Corps, which, according to Meade's original marching orders for July 1st, was supposed to end the day at two taverns, just four miles southeast of Gettysburg, down the Baltimore Pike. We'll talk more about Henry Slocum later, but for right now we'll say that Howard seemed to assume both Sickles and Slocum would hurry their troops forward to Gettysburg as he had done. Indeed, he seemed to assume that a mere statement that the 1st and 11th Corps were engaged with the enemy at Gettysburg would be sufficient to bring the other two corps racing to the scene at the double quick. But while neither Reynolds nor Howard got Meade's Pipe Creek Circular on July 1st, both Sickles and Slocum had received copies of it, and Henry Slocum, in particular, would disappoint Howard and not march directly to the sound of the guns, in part because he believed that Army Commander Meade wanted not a battle at Gettysburg, but a fighting withdrawal to the Pipe Creek line. Meade had included a note telling Slocum that all the evidence indicated the Confederates would be advancing in force to Gettysburg, and implying that Reynolds would make a slow fighting retreat before them. On notification from Reynolds that he had started to withdraw from Gettysburg, Slocum, at two taverns, was to implement the circular immediately, falling back to the Pipe Creek line. And so, since Howard hadn't mentioned that Reynolds was dead, and since strict and faithful obedience to orders 
was at the very core of Henry Slocum's character as a soldier. If Meade had ordered him to stay put at two taverns, then that's exactly what Henry Slocum would do, regardless of whatever fighting might be going on four miles up the road at Gettysburg. The 12th Corps would eventually begin to move to Gettysburg, but not until 3.30 that afternoon. And Howard wouldn't be getting any help from Dan Sickles either, since the courier sent off on that errand managed to get himself lost and wouldn't actually find Sickles until after 3 o'clock. What all of that would mean in practical terms for Howard is that the 11th and 1st Corps at Gettysburg were on their own the afternoon of July 1st. Meanwhile, Howard's 11th Corps soldiers continued making their way toward Gettysburg, double-quicking most of the way. As they drew nearer to town, the troops were met by a steady stream of civilians fleeing the fighting. Schertz remembered one woman shouting to him, Hard times at Gettysburg. They are shooting and killing. What will become of us? There would be no rest for the sweating, huffing and puffing soldiers of the 11th Corps once they reached the southern limits of the town. Buford's cavalry patrols had brought continuous updates all morning regarding the approach of a large force of Confederates, Yule's Corps, from the north, and so Howard decided to send Barlow's and Schertz's divisions straight through town in an effort to link up with Doubleday's right somewhere in the area of Oak Hill in order to meet this new threat approaching Gettysburg from the north. After receiving Howard's order to hurry the troops forward, Carl Schertz had ridden ahead and found Howard on Cemetery Hill and learned of Reynolds' death. With Howard in charge of the battle, that meant Schertz, as senior division commander, was now leading the 11th Corps. Schertz's division was the first to reach Gettysburg after toiling up the Tawny Town Road, while Barlow's men arrived next by way of the Emmitsburg Road, probably 30 minutes later. Since he was now acting 11th Corps commander, Schertz turned over leadership of his division to his senior brigadier, Alexander Schimmelfenig. Schertz would later remember how, quote, About half past twelve the head of the column of the 11th Corps arrived. The men, who had marched several miles at a rapid pace, were streaming with perspiration and panting for breath but they hurried through the town as best they could. Their best was quite impressive to the civilians watching the Union soldiers stream through the town's streets. 18-year-old Henry Jacobs, son of Pennsylvania College professor Michael Jacobs, reported, quote, Past our house they came, running at the double quick. They kept the pace without breaking ranks. They flowed through and out into the battlefield beyond, a human tide at Milray's speed. A roar of cheers began. It rolled forward, faster than the running men, like some high surge sweeping across the surface of a flowing sea. The running force was a splendid vision of high courage and eager hope. Howard had hoped that the 11th Corps troops he was sending racing through Gettysburg would be able to occupy the high ground of Oak Hill and connect with the right end of Doubleday's 1st Corps line, 
and in that way confront the Confederate threat from west and north of town. However, if you've been paying attention, you already know that Rhodes' Confederates had beat the Federals to, to that key piece of terrain, that is Oak Hill, and so, as Schertz would later note, quote, the deployment could not be made as originally designed by simply prolonging the First Corps line, for a strong Confederate force was on the right flank of the First Corps, so that to confront it, the Eleventh Corps had to deploy under fire at an angle with the First. Schimmelfenig, commanding the division, connected with the First Corps on his left as well as he could under the circumstances, and Barlow deployed on his right. As Rich just said, Howard had originally hoped to connect the 11th Corps directly to the right of Doubleday's 1st Corps line, but the presence of Rhodes' Confederates on Oak Hill prevented that. And so, when the 11th Corps arrived on the fields north of town, there developed a quarter-mile gap between the two Federal Corps. Howard accompanied Barlow's troops through Gettysburg, but then left the deployment of the 11th Corps in the capable hands of Carl Schurz. Then, galloping down to Seminary Ridge, Howard conferred with Abner Doubleday. Howard told Doubleday that if his men were driven back, they were to retreat through town and rally on Cemetery Hill, where he was placing his last 11th Corps division under von Steinwehr, to hold that critical piece of high ground. After talking with Doubleday, Howard rode back to Cemetery Hill, where he would stay for the remainder of the day. There was still a lot of fighting that was going to play out that Wednesday afternoon, but it would take place under the tactical direction of Schertz and Doubleday, not Otis Howard. As Doubleday saw to the First Corps line, Carl Schurz was realizing the position taken up by the 11th Corps was a poor one. The two divisions deployed at right angles to the 1st Corps, facing north on a line that ran across a broad, open, and almost perfectly level plain north of town. The position, with no natural feature on which to anchor it, would have left much to be desired even if Schurz's two divisions had been anywhere near large enough to cover the ground involved. But as it was, their line was distressingly thin. In many places, it was little more than a heavy skirmish line. And, as we've already mentioned, it didn't connect with the north end of Doubleday's line, leaving a gap of several hundred yards between the two corps. Still, though, if the Federals were going to hold Gettysburg that day, then they had little choice but to form a line somewhere on the north side of town. And so Schertz's division, now led by Schimmelfenig, formed on the left of the line, with its two brigades under George von Amsberg and Vladimir Krizanowski stretching across the broad open fields between the Mumisberg Road on its left and the Carlisle Pike on its right. Immediately upon taking up this position, the men of these two brigades came under fire from Carter's Confederate artillery on Oak Hill as well as from the Georgians of George Dole's brigade, which was stretched across their front. Then Barlow's division formed to the right of Schimmelfenig, stretching from the Carlisle Pike, in an easterly sort of way, in front of the county almshouse com complex and over to the Harrisburg Road. We'll talk about this in the next episode, 
but Barlow, not liking the position assigned to his division, decided to advance up to the only high ground on this area of the battlefield, a modest rise to his front known as Blocker's Knoll. It seemed a natural thing to do, that is, seizing the high ground, but as we'll see in the next show, Barlow's fateful decision to advance his command would soon spell disaster for the 11th Corps position there, north of Gettysburg. And that means it's time to bring the curtain down on this episode. No fighting in this show, and really that makes a few shows now without any actual combat, but sometimes setting the stage for the fighting is just as important. And you know us, we're big on setting the stage. But we guarantee there'll be enough fighting in the next couple of episodes to make up for it, as the Confederates roll forward all along the line north and west of town, and the 1st and 11th Corps positions collapse under the pressure. At any rate, as we close this show, we want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who went over to Patreon this past week and signed up to support the podcast. So thanks to John C., Paul, and Evan, David, Andrew M., and John W., Andrew B., Chris, and Chad, And thanks to Gary S. and Peter G. for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.